When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Pod. Adam Crafton is with us coming up today as Chelsea are beating the League Cup final. We explain why Roman Abramovich is looking to hand over the care of the club and what, if anything, it really means. And our Leeds writer, Phil Hay, joins us to reflect on the departure of Marcelo Bielsa from Ellen Road, uh, with Jesse Marsh likely to replace him as head coach at the time of recording. Let's start with the Chelsea owner then. Roman Abramovich said in a statement that he is giving trustees of Chelsea's charitable foundation the stewardship and care of the Premier League club. He'll remain as Chelsea's owner, but won't be involved in any decision-making at Stamford Bridge for the time being. It's understood that Abramovich has made the move amid Russia's continued invasion of Ukraine and there has been a call in Parliament for Abramovich to be hit with UK government sanctions. The Athletic has been told that nothing has been agreed, signed or transferred to the trustees as of Monday morning. Chelsea also provided a statement on what's happening in Ukraine. The statement read, the situation in Ukraine is horrific and devastating. Chelsea FC's thoughts with everyone in Ukraine, everyone at the club is praying for peace. Joining us to discuss this is the Athletics Chelsea writer, Liam Toomey, who was at Wembley yesterday. It feels slightly surreal to say this, Liam, but but we'll do the football first before the crisis that's engulfing the world at the moment. Therefore, it makes the question sound even more sort of trite and unimportant. But anyhow, I wonder how Chelsea will react to, to what happened in the League Cup final? I think in general, there'll probably be an acceptance that it ended up being a bit of a coin toss game. It was a, it was a great final, uh, a, a football match that for a few hours made you forget, certainly if you were in the stadium, everything else that's swirling around Chelsea in particular. And Chelsea's game plan, I thought, you know, Tuchel got his tactics pretty much spot on against Liverpool. Um, they created just as many chances to win the game, perhaps more if you factor in the offside goals. And then the penalty shootout really was about as close to a lottery as as you can get. I don't generally believe penalties are a lottery, but when you get to the point of goalkeepers taking them... (laughs) Um, you can't really legislate for that. No, and 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 for all for all the criticism that's flying around over over Chelsea bringing Kepper on for the shootout, you you aren't expecting it to go to ten all and down to both keepers keepers taking the penalty. I mean, so some of the criticism, even though Kepper didn't have a very good shootout, some of the criticism seems bizarre to me. Well, people are criticising the outcome rather than the process, which is kind of the theme of my match piece. Kepa's a, a much superior penalty saver to Mendy. That all the numbers that we have and all the numbers that Tuchel has prove that the failure of that decision wasn't Kepa missing his penalty. It was him failing to stop 11 Liverpool kicks. Um, but most of them were brilliant. Liverpool took 
incredible penalties. It was only really Ibrahima Kanate's kick that I think Kepa could have saved and probably should have saved. I mean, I know Van Dijk wellied it, but it, it, it was... I mean, Kepper had moved to that side of the goal and, and was there. I, I mean, I know it went at some force. Well, that felt like the moment that the uh, the, the mind game balance switched because you had the Fabinho Penenka and then the Van Dijk blast back to back. And it, it that felt like an emphatic statement from Liverpool of we're not affected by you. We're not going we're not going to be put off our game by you. Adam. It's a shame for Kepper though, isn't it? I mean like given when Mendy was away, he'd sort of reasserted his credibility mm. and form. And you know, you started to think you know, he was getting towards somewhere that starts to explain why Chelsea bought him in the first place. And then then he doesn't get picked for the final of the Club World Cup. Um, Mendy played in that one ahead of him. And then, you know, I mean, obviously it went really badly for him against Liverpool at, at Wembley. It's also really interesting because Mendy had had such a brilliant game. And, you know, if I was a Liverpool player stepping up to take a penalty yesterday, I'd probably quite relieved Mendy wasn't there after the game he had where, you know, some of his saves were unbelievable. I mean, just talking about some of the greatest saves we've probably seen at the new Wembley. You know, you understand the decision, uh, the outcome um, obviously dictates the, you know, a lot of the coverage that follows it. Yeah, I think the harshest thing for Kepper was, as you say, not not starting the game. And the, similar with the Club World Cup final, it, it kind of highlights really the limits to this redemption arc that he's been on. You know, he's he's performing a lot better. He's performing to the point where you probably wouldn't feel bad about him starting for most teams in Europe now. Is he up for sale? Well, Chelsea will listen to offers for him, but I think that's been true for a long time, ever since he lost his place as number one. The situation is more complicated than that because what kind of offers are you going to get? And what what kind of clubs are, A, looking for a starting goalkeeper and B, willing to invest as much as it would take to, to get Kepper? The market forces are stacked against Chelsea offloading him. And there, and as we've seen in the Club World Cup and in the League Cup, there are limits to how much he can rebuild his value while he's still a number two. He, he, there's also just not that many clubs that are looking for an expensive goalkeeper um, at the moment. That's, you know, that's the, the market forces that you refer to. And that's kind of been the case for the past year or so since he fell out of form. I think there's different stages he'd have been happy to leave Chelsea would have been happy to move him on, but you know his agents, the club, have have struggled to find, you know, a club that both matches his ambition as a goalkeeper that went for 60, 70 million and is on the salary that he is, and, and a club able to pay Chelsea anywhere near what what they would want. And I think there was a bit of a reluctance as well to do a loan because then you've got to go and get a second choice goalkeeper to be bought in to replace him. So it's all, it's all quite complicated when you get into goalkeepers, a bit like Dean Henderson. At Manchester United, a similar situation where you get you know, a really talented goalkeeper a bit trapped by circumstances. Let's move it on then to talking about the overall situation at Chelsea with their owner, uh, Roman Abramovich. You've both contributed to articles on The Athletic over the weekend since the statement was made on Saturday evening. The essence of both articles, Adam, is what does the statement mean? What on earth is going on? What has changed? Two big statements over the weekend. The first one drops... Um, late Saturday afternoon or early evening. And yeah, I mean, there's not a huge amount in it. I think there's something like 110 words. It talks about the giving stewardship and care of Chelsea FC to the six trustees of the Chelsea Charitable Foundation. So, I mean, the first thing which everyone was trying to unpack is what does stewardship and care actually mean? And, and the reality from a, you know, a legal 
sense is, is not very much at all. It's not ownership. There's been no transfer of control or shares. There's no suggestion that Abramovich is, you know, ceasing to be the person who is able to make decisions or run the club or fund the club or take money out of the club. So you're then left in a position where it's, okay, so, so what is this thing, this thing, stewardship and care? What does it actually mean? And that's what the trustees were trying to work out as well, because they were only told on Saturday afternoon, a few hours before the statement dropped, that this statement was going to come. And they were told by Bruce Buck, who's both the chairman of Chelsea and of the trustees. The trustees, if people aren't aware, they are Emma Hayes, who is the women's team manager. You have John Devine, who is a sports lawyer who doesn't work for the club. Paul Ramos, who is the director of finance. And you then have people such as Piara Power, who is former, uh, for, used to run Kick It Out, now runs the Fair Network, um, which is an anti-discrimination network across Europe. You have Hugh Robertson from the British Olympics. Seb Coe kind of informally. Yeah. And then you have Seb yeah. Coe who, well, Seb Coe is not listed as a trustee, but has been part of the initial consultation process and talks. And I, I think the concern for the trustees at the moment is there isn't any transfer of control or power away from Abramovich. It continues at this moment in time. The club structure is unchanged. You still have Marina Granovskaya um, as a director. You still have Eugene Tenenbaum. These are, these are big allies of Abramovich. And therefore, I think the trustees are a little bit concerned that there might be the impression that Chelsea is being handed over to a charity and therefore, in the worst case scenario for Abramovich, should he be sanctioned by the British government, then the British government may look at Chelsea as a football club and say, well, they're run by a charity. How can we do anything? And they're run by people like Emma Hayes and Piara Power and Hugh Robertson. So how can you put sanctions against them? Um, so I think that's one concern, you know, that trustees would not want to be used in that way and put into a really invidious position. Um, the, the, the flip side of that is there may be a sense also of just protecting the club. I mean, Chelsea's official position on this is, we need to protect the club in terms of to deflect from any headlines that might be surrounding Roman Abramovich at this time. That's what that's, you know, that's the club's briefing on this, that it's not about sanctions. It's about distracting from unwanted attention in the interests of the club. I think a lot of people who have been following this closely, who have heard in Parliament British MPs call for sanctions against Russian billionaires such as Roman Abramovich, are looking at it and saying, the club might be preparing in some way for what would happen in the event of sanctions against a very successful Russian businessman at this time where there is, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And one of you know, the worst case scenario of sanctions is that Chelsea as an asset, as an asset of Abramovich, could be frozen. And that means you can't, you might not be able to pay your players, you might not be able to fulfill fixtures, you might not be able to use bank accounts. And clearly, you know, that would become an existential threat for Chelsea. Um, so there are some people who say that's what the motivation is. Chelsea, as I say, you know, have always denied that there is a relation, you know, a close relationship between Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, and Roman Abramovich. Uh, they say he just happens to be a, a very successful Russian businessman. That's where we are on, on Monday morning. Nothing has been signed over. Nothing has been agreed by the trustees. Talks continue. As Adam has said there, Liam, those within Chelsea, when Adam talks about that, that 
existential threat that that not being able to trade, not being able to use bank accounts, not being able to fulfill fulfill fixtures. Those within Chelsea would would be negligent if they weren't preparing for the worst case scenario. That's what that's what all businesses. Yeah, it's crisis planning, isn't it? Yeah, um, and that's why I think. You know, when the dust settled on that initial statement on Saturday night, my first thought was, what can Abramovich see coming? Because after, you know, 19 years of private ownership, this is not the first time there have been negative headlines about Abramovich, some of which he's challenged successfully in court. Others, you know, have, ju- have just been allowed to sort of slide. But this is the first time he's felt compelled to distance himself at least at the very least on an appearance level in this way. And that suggests to me, you know, coming at the end of a week in which he was named in parliament with MPs calling for him to be stripped of Chelsea and have assets frozen and all sorts of sanctions be taken against him. That suggests to me that at least Abramovich thinks, and there's always an element of speculation to this because Abramovich doesn't say very much, but that suggests to me that he at least thinks that there's more coming down the pipeline here that that he has to worry about and potentially Chelsea have to worry about as well but as Adam has you know has explained in detail and of course our explainer I thought Matt Slater did excellent work on that as well um, this doesn't seem especially well thought out it seems like quite a panic move it was it was communicated on Saturday (laughs) very very quickly as sometimes happens at Chelsea where one man makes a decision and everyone else reacts. It doesn't seem like it's it's a solution that's necessarily going to solve the problems that could lie ahead. Uh, it's, I mean, it's also interesting, a second statement came on Sunday morning. Did that help, the second statement? The second statement came. The first statement from Abramovich was from the owner and made absolutely no reference to world events or anything that might have taken place. Um, the second statement was a club statement, and that came on, on Sunday morning, and it spoke, you know, the club statement on the conflict in, U- in Ukraine. It talked about a situation in Ukraine. Um, I think a lot of people looked at that and said, this should probably be called the war in Ukraine. It should probably be called the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There was no mention of Russia whatsoever in the statement. The, the interesting thing is Abramovich had said on Saturday night that he was handing over stewardship and care of Chelsea to, to the trustees. As I said, nothing had been agreed by the trustees at this stage. They'd not signed up to anything. Additionally, they had nothing to do with this statement that came on, on Sunday morning. And you know, you would think that reputationally, if you're talking about the care and stewardship of Chelsea FC, I'm not sure that that statement was particularly good for the stewardship and care of Chelsea FC. And that, that's what, what kind of the point I was coming back to. The day-to-day running of Chelsea is unchanged at the moment. You still have Marina Granovskaya, Eugene Tenenbaum, who, by the way, was born in Ukraine in the former Soviet Union. You also have Petr Cech and, and uh, Carlo Cudicini. All those sort of people that have been around Chelsea for a long time are still running the club on a day-to-day basis. So I think even if the, impre- if the intention was to give this outward appearance of... Roman Abramovich is is a bit more distant from the club, therefore, you know, maybe the the club might be better protected. If you apply like a modicum of analysis to that, it kind of falls down straight away. I mean, he is still the owner of the club. He's still, you know, his company, Fordstone Limited, is still the ultimate parent company. That's not transferred any shares. It's still the, the responsible party. So it's going to be a really interesting few days. More talks upcoming. The other interesting person, Seb Coe, 
um, president of World Athletics, um, who is not officially a trustee, but has been involved in the talks. On Sunday, he was at the table, the Chelsea table at the executive suite at Wembley. Again, you know, one of the big concerns is the conflict of interest for, for all these different trustees. If you're Emma Hayes, you are the women's team manager and what you're going to be responsible for running the club in some way. Same for Paul Ramos as finance director, even Bruce Buck. It would be a promotion of of sorts for him. I thought Thomas Tuchel spoke very well on Friday, didn't he? he? He really handled it. He handled it very well on Friday. But this is this is a tricky, and I'm trying to use my words carefully here because you know it's it's a horrendous situation for everybody who is in Ukraine. First of all, to caveat this, right? But this is a very tricky and difficult situation for people who work at Chelsea for Chelsea at the moment. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, I think I think everyone, and Tuchel alluded to that, didn't he, that it, it had been affected in the players, it had been affecting him. I think they, they've received some measure of consolation from the fact that, you know, from their perspective, nothing's really going to change. As, as Adam said, Marina Granovskaya is running the football side day-to-day as she always was. Guy Lawrence is running the business side day-to-day as he always was. But if you're kind of just like a rank-and-file staffer at Chelsea, it's got to be... I mean, they, they've been through plenty of, of of time of awkward times before, but I think this seems to be a different level because there's, a, there's an existential level of uncertainty around the club now. There's never been this kind of threat to Abramovich's ownership, nothing that has prompted him to take a step that even if functionally it doesn't change that much in the short term, in terms of the significance, um, I think it's absolutely massive that he feels the, feels that this sort of thing is necessary. The amazing line from Tuchel was, to, to a certain degree, I can understand the opinions and critical opinions towards the club, towards us who represent that club, I understand that and we cannot fully free ourselves from it. I mean, for a Chelsea manager to say that is it's extraordinary. And I think it's a huge credit to, to, to Tuchel that he was prepared, you know, to actually address that issue and, and not simply say, you know, I'm here to talk about football because you couldn't, you couldn't separate it really on Friday. It's more than you could reasonably expect of anyone who's functionally an employee of, of, of Roman Abramovich to say. Uh, and I don't think many previous Chelsea head coaches would have said that. But the general impression I got from Tuchel in that press conference was that he was speaking primarily as a concerned citizen, a concerned citizen of Europe. He maybe ultimately reports to Abramovich, but he represents Chelsea Football Club. He, it's not his job is not to represent Roman Abramovich, and you know I think that's something that people like Emma Hayes, Bruce Buck will be thinking over the next few days. I represent the values of this club based in Britain. And you can argue over whether that is impacted anyway by who the owner is in some ways. But I think we have to remember that, that you're working for an institution, not necessarily for the individual who happens to own that institution at a certain time. So there's a slight distinction. And earlier, I spoke to Nicole Kozlova, a Ukrainian international who plays for HB Kui in Denmark for part of an interview that will be available for readers of The Athletic later this week. Here is a clip of our conversation as I asked Nicole how important it has been to the people of Ukraine to see the support from people involved in the uh, 
football community over the last few days. The support I've seen around the world and from football teams coming out, you know, in shirts with flags. Um, at our game, both teams agreed for a moment of silence for me um, and for my country. And it means so much. I like you, you know, you hear we support you. And then but when actions are taken and as much I hate social media, but it is our reality right now. And it's been a reality for the past few years. And so just seeing that visible support on social media for me means so much. And it, I just don't, you know, you kind of sometimes may feel alone in situations like this, but, I, you know, here at the club, I haven't felt alone. I've had people check in on me constantly, you know, girls, uh, staff, coaching staff, um, like everybody at the club has gone come up to me and asked what they can do. And I just think the next thing is just um, like supporting in other ways, like, uh, donations, um, asking, like, just there's so many other actions also that, like, that next step. But those visible um, stances have been huge, you know, it's everywhere. And it's sometimes even maybe clubs you wouldn't expect have been doing it. And I, I've liked it. And I'm sure Ukrainians are feeling that support. I think when you see that, when you feel that support, um, it makes you stronger. <laughs> So Leeds United have parted company with Marcelo Bielsa after almost four years in charge. Phil Hayes, our Leeds United writer, uh, and joins us now. Goodness me, there was some soul-searching going on over the last month or so, wasn't there, before they came to this decision? Yeah, and, and also post the decision as well. It's been an interesting weekend on on Twitter and and quite a quite a backlash to, to the decision, really. I, I think one of the conversational topics right the way through the, the Bielsa era, and particularly after it all clicked and, and they won promotion, was the the idea and the wish that it would end in a way which was kind of fitting for, for his time here. And, and you know, let him let him go with this, a kind of nice bookended four years, five years, how, however long it was. And he wasn't too far away from reaching that point had they stayed up this season, as, as difficult and as hard as this season has, had been. I think survival in season two in the Premier League on the back of his, his three previous years would have would have allowed him to have gone feeling that he'd, he'd done everything that he needed to do here. He wouldn't have been happy with this season and he, wouldn't have, he wasn't happy with the performance, but everybody would have said, you know, there was nothing more that could be asked of, of him. But ultimately, it, it's it's got to the point with results and um, the concession of goals and, and the performance of the team where the, the faith in the boardroom had gone um, last week and had reached the, the stage where they no longer felt that the, the best chance of staying in the division and, and avoiding relegation was keeping Bielsa as head coach for the last 12 games. They're going to go with Jesse Marsh, who was at, at Salzburg and at Leipzig, which is definitely a gamble. And, you know, there's no guarantee to say that that he is going to do better in the last 12 games than Bielsa would have done. But I think the the kind of the key indicators and, and the pointers of, of the recent games were that this team were in big trouble um, and, and we're, we're just no longer clicking in the way that they had. He's got a big job on on two or three fronts, hasn't he? I mean, first of all, first of all he's got to stop them conceding goals. I mean, the goals in February are utterly 20 in their games in February, which is a, a joint Premier League record. Uh, with Sunderland from, I think, 2005. So he's got to stop them conceding goals, but he's got to win over a fan base as well, hasn't he, who are who are basically mourning, aren't they? I mean, that that, that is what they're doing. And then the third part of that, Phil, and, and, and I have no idea how the players in the main behind the scenes, put out whatever you want on social media, but behind the scenes will feel 
about Bielsa going, bear in mind so many of them talked about him as this grandfather figure and blah, blah, blah. So he's got three big things there. He has. I mean, to start with the players, there was never a mutiny with Bielsa. It wasn't a case of the dressing room was completely lost and there was infighting and, and you know, there were, there were problems on that front. The players were still doing what he was asking them to do and the players were still pushing themselves physically. Someone was saying to me yesterday that the, the running stats, even in the, the point where it deteriorated to, you know, 6-0 defeat at Liverpool, 4-0 defeat at Spurs, were still very, very good. But the players themselves were starting to feel that it just wasn't happening. I think they felt that they, they were feeling the pressure of the, the kind of tactical failings that were happening, particularly with the, the man marking and how open the team had become and, and the goals that they were conceding. So I don't think a refresh will necessarily be a bad thing for them. And, and I don't think they will necessarily en masse object to it. They'll, they'll be sorry in their own ways to see Bielsa go because he's elevated some of them to a level that they personally, I remember Luke Galen saying this, he, he never really expected to be a Premier League player. And he didn't think he would be a Premier League player had it not been for the fact that Bielsa had, had been his head coach. But it was difficult to ignore what, what was what was going on on the pitch. If you followed social media over the last 24 hours, 48 hours, you'll have seen the reaction to Bielsa going. You'll have seen the people who've been to the training ground to, to meet him for the last time, who've been to his house in, in Weatherby, who, who've basically made every effort they, they can to say thank you to him. And, and it, it's almost unheard of, really, to see a manager sacked like this and to go with absolutely no ill will from anybody, you know, quite quite the opposite. So it is a challenge for Marsh that in saying that it was going to be not a nightmare scenario, but it was going to be extremely difficult for whoever was coming after Bielsa because it's almost the most, having been the most difficult job in football, give or take, when Bielsa took it on, it, it kind of hasn't changed in the sense that he's the coach you're replacing. And on top of that, he's coming in at a point where the, the impact has got to be immediate. And I think that will be that will be the, the biggest factor for him and, and for the club. If they start to play better quickly and if results come, then actually I don't think it will be that difficult for him to settle into the job. But if it doesn't go well and if the results are, are not good, then the, the constant question is going to be, why did we not just stick with, with what, what we have? Because I didn't sense really that there was a massive groundswell among the support um, for a change. You're right. I mean, when you take the, the rain as a whole, it's been, you know, the most extraordinary ride for Leeds fans. And I think, you know, the adulation that he's got and the thanks he's getting now, gratitude, is because he did something that so many others couldn't do. You know, he made them proud of their club again. He actually made them think their club was better than most clubs again. I know Leeds fans have always had, you know, a pretty good view of themselves anyway. But I think, you know, there was a kind of almost like a moral superiority about being a Leeds fan under Bielsa because they played better football I think Leeds feel like they're probably losing a part of themselves by losing Bielsa and it probably leaves them searching a little bit for an identity again. I think the Marsh as a replacement is quite interesting because I think on the face of it, some people will look at him and say they're quite similar in the style of football, you know, high pressing, like Red Bull Leipzig model, a bit like Ralph Rangnick, Ralph Hassenhutl. It's going to be you know, difficult for him to retrain players in some ways um, to different methods of playing when you've been so drilled and so relentlessly, uh, relentlessly drilled for three or four years. Even in the games this week, you know, I was at the game against Liverpool and the players were still doing what Bielsa wanted them to do in terms of the style of play. They were still going man to man. They were still making all the courageous sprints into the box, you know, in numbers, all those things were still happening. It was just the execution of it that wasn't as good as it was last season. 
So, you know, it is a shame. And I still, I mean, Phil, you'll probably have a better view than me, but I still think if they could have got to a point with Phillips and Bamford back in two weeks' time, I do think they'd probably have done enough to stay up. And I think, you know, some that will always be the hypothetical, depending what happens now. But I do think, you know, his system is so dependent on those two players that if you actually had them back, could they have stayed up with him? And and Co- and Cooper to organise that because my God, that defence is all over the place organisationally. I think they miss Cooper more than they realise. I mean, opinion is very divided on him in Leeds, but leadership-wise, he, he's extremely influential and he's a talker. And I know talking is not the, the be-all and end-all of defending, but I think it does make a difference to the defence and I think it would make a, a difference to the defence. And I, I think that is part of, the, part of the debate at the moment, is that none of the three of them are that far away from returning and playing. And, and when they do, suddenly the spine of the team returns and, and that might have been a critical turning point for Bielsa. I don't think I was at the stage of, of thinking that all was lost with him. And, and I, I've kind of felt all the way through the season that they would they would have enough. But I think a week like the one behind us does start to plant, plant the seed. And it's more than anything... I didn't expect them to beat Manchester United. I didn't, didn't think they'd beat Liverpool. I didn't really think they'd take much from Spurs, although you, you can't really tell where Spurs are going from one day to the next. But it's the it's definitely the nature of the goals they're conceding which becomes the worry. And I think it's the fact that, as happened on Saturday and, and also Anfield, but in other games as well, they can go from being in a game and, and playing relatively well to being 3-0 down and out of it in, in the blink of an eye. And one of the things I was saying over the weekend is that all the punch resistance just seems to have gone completely with them. You know, once, once you get into the ribs, it, it you know, it, it does look like it's going to drop to bits. I feel like this is a toss of a coin, really. I, I, I can't say for certain that Marsh will, will keep them up in the same way that I couldn't have said for certain after Saturday that, that Bielsa would. But there's no doubt at all from the board's point of view, this has to work. On that point of the board, we know that Lees have investment from the San Francisco 49ers. How crucial is it financially, future of the club, long-term planning of the club, that they do stay in the Premier League this season? I know we always say, you know, you must stay in the Premier League, but we've seen clubs like Fulham go up and down, Norwich go up and down. How much does it matter for Leeds to do that? It's essential on on a few fronts. I mean, financially, they would have a wage bill that was unsustainable in the championship. And and also, you know, they, they uh, th- there has been criticism of the investment made, but they have spent a lot on players without selling players to recoup any cash in return. I, I suspect that's going to change quite soon. I think people like Rafinha are, are going to be targets um, as soon as this, this season ends. Whether they'll go is, is difficult to say and will depend on the money that's offered. But it seems inconceivable to me that the clubs won't try to try to take advantage of the fact that they can offer more than, than Leeds can at the moment. But also in the background, you've got the the state the plans to redevelop Ellen Road to take it from 36,000 to, to 60, you know, 55, 60,000, which is going to involve a huge amount of money, but also needs the, the pool of the Premier League to have you know the, enough supporters in the ground to fill it. I mean, at the moment, they, they can sell season tickets and have sold season tickets this season Uh, for next season without any significant advertising campaign they've got a massive waiting list of about 20,000 names um, more than that now I would think so it's you know the the, the demand is absolutely there 
but the demand is there because Bielsa football was hugely appealing and we've no longer got that, um, you know, as a, as a selling point in Leeds. Uh, it was also, you know, the, the season ticket list was huge because it, they were back in the Premier League and, and it does draw more people in. And on top of that, you, you obviously have a situation in terms of the shareholding where Radizani is 56%, the 49ers have 44%. A lot of us, including me, are expecting, you know, more equity to move towards the 49ers as time goes on. And it goes without saying that the value of those shares is vastly inflated in the Premier League in comparison to what those shares would be worth in the Championship. When we judge Leeds at the moment, when we assess Leeds at the moment, are we judging and, and assessing a Leeds that, that is on their history and size of club rather than where they've been over the last 15, 16 years? I.e., they're a club who have been out of the top flight for those 16 years. They're only in their second season back in the Premier League. Plenty of reports over the weekend that their wage budget is the second smallest in, in the Premier League. You know, that's a, that's a decent stadium, but it's an old stadium, isn't it, Phil? So we're talking about the de- development there. This is a very new project, a new Premier League team in many ways with a club with a lot of history. There's also a lot to it. I mean, if you, if you come up and... The owner, the chairman, Andrea Radrazani, has spoken a few times about the fact that he wants a three to five year plan which takes them into Europe. And that would be the Europa League rather than the Champions League. You know, alongside that, you have the stadium development plans as well. And I think there is a risk of trying to run before you can walk um, and, and of making, you know, of, of absolutely making sure that you're an established Premier League club before you think too much about trying to stretch yourself and push ahead. The difficulty there is that you're constantly trying to balance the fact that you, you know, clubs at this level have fan bases who who expect certain things and like to see progression. I think expectation grows when you rise exponentially as you have as they have under Bielsa. I mean, particularly finishing ninth last season, it kind of felt as if it was going to be this steep climb forever, um, and it had to plateau at, at some point, and it felt like it was doing that this season. I, I never had a problem with the idea of them finishing mid-table again this year or even the season after or for a couple of years. It, it's not particularly romantic. It's not very exciting. But I think it probably has to happen in order for, as you say, to go from a club who were you know, EFL fodder for so long to being a, a club who are, who are going to stick around in the Premier League for a long time, if, if not indefinitely. Again, that has been part of the discussion over the weekend. Had Bielsa kept them up, he would have done what he needed to do. You know, it's, it, yes, they finished ninth last season, but I think everybody felt that that was a, a team punching above the way, you know, with, without any any doubt. And had it wound up being 15th this season, 16th, even, even 17th, it would have guaranteed them another summer of Premier League income, another summer in which they can plan ahead, look at the mistakes that have been made this season, consider what to change and, and what to do differently, particularly with, with recruitment. But I, I just think that, Ultimately, the board was spooked by the last week. And I also suspect that the fact that they, they like Marsh so much and have been looking at him for a long time and he was available meant that it was easier to make that decision than it might have been otherwise. Good stuff, Phil. Thank you very much. Busy few days ahead. Good stuff. See you soon. Cheers, guys. This is a paid advertisement from Better Health Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stressors, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. 
And if you think you're starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. You can read plenty more on that lead story across The Athletic. And right now you can subscribe for just £1 a month for the first six months. Go to theathletic.com slash football pod. I'm back on Thursday with Matt Slater for the business of sport. Thanks for listening.